passage uh, to Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 to 10. Colossians 3, 5 to 10. Starting in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the, in the image of its creator. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would speak to us today, Lord, with your word. Um, we pray that you would take my meager words, my insufficient words, and we pray that the power of your spirit would take these words and make them words of life that reach deep into each and every one of our souls. Lord, you know our hearts. Our hearts are an open book before you. You read every one of us here. And we pray, Lord, that through your word, you would deliver to each and every one of us the words we need to show us our sin, but to make us all the more thankful for our Savior, who is so much bigger than all of our failures. So, Lord, speak to us here in these moments. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, just one little kind of announcement, this uh, sermon, as you probably could guess from the text, we'll be talking uh, about uh, sex, and so just giving you a heads up, if you have young kids, uh, that maybe you aren't ready for them to hear these things or whatever, you can take them back to stepping stones. Everything I say, I do in, with the knowledge that my kids are sitting here, so I think it'll be all right, but just wanted to uh, give everybody a little bit of a warning. Um, all right. <laughs> well, shortly after Lisa and I got married, uh, we took a trip to Japan. So we were living in Hawaii. I was finishing up my time with the military, and we used what was called a space available flight, which is basically people in the military can hitchhike on the many, probably hundreds of military flights that traverse the globe every day. And you can do it for free. Now the catches, the schedules aren't published in advance, and so you don't know where you might be going until you show up at the airfield. And we lived in Hawaii, and so that meant that that day there were flights everywhere from Darwin, Australia in the south, all the way up to Okinawa in the north, and then a bunch of random places that I had never even heard of, like the Johnson Atoll, which is a group of four islands in the middle of the Pacific that combined make up one square mile. So we packed our bags, unsure of exactly where we would end up, and we hopped on a flight to Guam. And then from Guam, there was another flight that carried us to Yokota Air Base, which is just outside of Tokyo. And then we found ourselves, still a little bit disoriented, walking off the base to a nearby train station to figure out how in the world we could get from that train station into Tokyo to that hotel that we'd booked just 30 minutes before. And Tokyo is unlike any city I've ever visited. It's almost twice the size of New York City and yet infinitely more clean. 
Uh, I don't think I ever saw a piece of trash on the ground. It was remarkable. Uh, it is a remarkable how organized the city is. Many times we pass through the Shinjuku train station, which is uh, every day some three and a half million people pass through it. And yet it never felt as crowded or chaotic as a New York City train station. You would never for a moment think you are in one of the busiest train stops in the world. And never for a moment while in Tokyo, or probably most of Japan, would you forget that you are in Tokyo, that you would think, and, you know, think, oh, maybe I'm in the United States, because everything there is so different from the sliding doors instead of doors on a hinge to the fact that you never handed money to someone, but you always set it on a tray and then they slid it from the tray off to all of the lights, to the way people drive, and the general organization, or even our hotel, which had a traditional Japanese mat bed. Now, contrast the experience of going to a foreign place like Tokyo with, say, going to a Japanese restaurant here in the city, where the food will be Japanese, maybe you'll have a Japanese waiter, but you'll pay in dollars, and the uh, menu will be offered in English, and you'll probably also be given a fork with your food. It, one is an entire experience being immersed in the culture. One is kind of just a thing you can take or leave. And in our passage, Paul is saying that Christianity is a culture, that to be a Christian is to immerse yourself in a new culture in a way that is more similar than if, to if you were to pack up and move and immerse yourself in Tokyo than it would be to just go into a Japanese restaurant one time this week. Unfortunately, so many people today, Christians, treat Christianity more like just visiting a Japanese restaurant, a nice thing you can kind of do on the side, a nice thing that's fun, but not something that actually alters every aspect of your life. But if you're truly a Christian, it has to reorient your entire life. Nothing can be untouched by the power of God. You must reflect an entirely different culture from the surrounding culture. And so this is what I want us to remember this morning. Christians must embody the culture of Christ. We must embody the culture of Christ. Christianity is not just knowing a bunch of stuff. It is actually having that knowledge sink into your heart and affect even the way you act in day-to-day -day situations. We're just going to look at two points. One is a new culture, and then two, old vices. So first, a new culture. Now, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, and if it seems like we're kind of going backwards in Colossians, since we looked at verses 12 to 14 last week, you're not crazy. This is the second part of a sermon I preached on three weeks ago, but then I was out of town. And so this is kind of the follow-up to that, where we focus on all of these old, these vices that Paul says that we should take off. Uh, last week, you may remember, Sean preached about how we are to put on the clothes of Christ. And before you can put on the clothes of Christ, or maybe in conjunction with it, we have to take off these old clothes of the world. And so I want to dive deeper into this list of things that Paul talks about and how do we take them off. But before we get into that, just kind of some preliminary things. First off, remember the big picture of what Paul is talking about that we've been looking at every sermon through chapter 3. He has just showed us that when you become a Christian, your life is really enveloped in Christ 
that the power cables of heaven come down and plug into your heart and begin to remake you into the image of Jesus. That is what being a Christian is. Being a Christian is not just, you know, one decision you make and then you go off living the rest of your life. It's not just like picking from your favorite Japanese restaurant to order sushi from on the weekend. It is a change of your culture as much or even more so than if you were to pack your bags and move off to Japan. It is a complete wardrobe change of putting off all of the things that were listed in these verses and putting on all the things listed in verses 12 to 14. And by extension, means that means that if individual Christians are supposed to embody these things, that Christian communities or churches must then reflect a different culture from the rest of society. It, we must show that what we are living for, how we are living, how we are treating people is different from how the rest of the world treats people. I think this is one of the greatest weaknesses of the church today is that we don't look all that different from the surrounding culture. Now, not just the average of the culture, but you know, in some ways you can kind of put so many churches and label them with the traditional labels that you would label either political party with. It's this type of church or that type of church. But as Christians, we actually have to show something much more robust. We cannot fit neatly into the simple categories of the world. Do our sexual ethics and our treatment of the foreigner and the poor, do the way that we approach these things shows that God's word has defined our Christian culture, or does everything that we do as a church fit neatly into the box of, say, either one of the political parties? Are we showing a culture that holds together all of Scripture? So, for instance, a care for the foreigners among us, and a biblical definition of marriage. We are entering into a time when living as a Christian is going to be seen as odd by everybody from every side of the political spectrum and perhaps even dangerous by people. And it is going to be all the more important that we don't get kind of pulled by one of those two magnets but we all have the conviction and the courage to live fully as Christians, meaning that we will never quite fit in with the surrounding culture. It means that our church and other Christian churches cannot just be a reflection of everybody else, but actually shows forth a distinct culture, a culture of Christ to the dying world. And for us to do that, it requires work on your part, work on our part. Last week, Sean pointed out how all the virtues of things that you're supposed to put on are a description of Jesus. To be a Christian is to enter into a lifelong journey to have your life chipped away and molded and fashioned so that it looks more and more like the life of Jesus. You cannot be a casual Christian. Now, this is difficult work 
because it is the work of removing old habits, which all of you know how hard it is to get rid of bad habits. It is hard to get rid of the vices that we have just become used to. And then it is even harder to replace them with good ones. Maybe a helpful analogy I once heard, once read about was, you know, when you go sledding after a fresh snowfall and you've got a, a, like a blank canvas and you take that first sled run down the hill, well, it's always a little bit slow because you're making a track, right? But then the next sled run goes a little bit quicker. And before you know it, you've got a nice packed down sled track and the sled will always go down that. It actually takes extra work to get the sled to go off the sled track. And our character works the same way. Your, your habits, your virtues, your vices, these are like sled tracks in your heart that kind of, if you don't give any effort to it, you will just continually to slide down that same sled track over and over. When something doesn't go your way, how do you naturally react? That's the sled track of your heart, your character. And why is it so hard to change the way you react when something bad happens? Because you've built these sled tracks in your heart. It's the easiest way for you to slide down that hill. And to make it all the more complicated, because none of us actually start off at like a blank slate, but we all have inherited these sled tracks from Adam and his original sin that we have the wrong sled tracks to start off with in our heart. And it's all the more work to change those paths to good ones. It takes a lot of work to make a new track. It takes a lot of effort to break free from that sled track and forge a new one that goes somewhere better. This is why the Christian life is effort. It is work. It is something that if you're just a casual Christian, you will never do that work of changing your habits and the sled tracks in your heart towards something that is more honoring of God. This is the Christian journey. Are you up for that kind of lifelong challenge. That's why Paul uses this strong language in verse five, put to death. The Christian life is not a boring life. When was putting anything to death boring? The, The Christian life is one of the most noble pursuits of slaying the dragons that lay siege to your own heart so that you can be free to be the person that God has made you to be. It is a fight. It is work. It is a challenge. And you get nowhere by just sliding through life. Now, it's important to say when I say this, that what's been such a clear theme through the book of Colossians is that this work of putting on the clothes of Christ is not what makes you acceptable before Christ. It's not that God is looking down at you like a a little kid who's, you know, playing with Uh, a bunch of play clothes and say, well, once you get the outfit all right, you know, then you can come into my house. Then I'll say you're mine. No, it's actually the opposite, right? That simple childlike faith in Jesus so connects you to the life of God that, that that is what saves you. Simple faith. It is all his grace. Christ holds open his arms to embrace rebels and sinners while they are still stuck in their sin. There is no sin that is deeper than the depth of his love, but you must allow yourself to be embraced by him. And when you are embraced by him, he begins that work of fashioning you, changing you, molding you, so you look more and more like Jesus. 
See, what is being described here in this list is not just a, a checklist of things not to do, and then in the next verses of things to do, but it, it is actually deeper than that. It's not really just being satisfied with surface-level actions, but it is like God's schematic for what He intends you to look like when He's done with His work, that you will embody these characteristics from your inner being to your outside. Notice some of the language, verse 7. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. Paul is not describing becoming a Christian is just making some tweaks to your current life, right? Some, some life hacks or anything. He's saying, no, you are actually walking on an entirely different trail. Or verse 9, you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self. Does that sound like just a, a casual thing you do one night? It is No, it is a change of identity. It is a change of your life. It's like moving from one country to another. Some of you know firsthand what that is like and how difficult it is. It is embracing an entirely new culture, the culture of Christ. So the question is, are you working? Do you have this vision for being someone whose entire life from your head to your toes is transformed by Jesus so that everything you do has his fragrance on it? Or are you just trying to live your current life and take little bits of Jesus that you like and integrate them into your plan? Ask yourself, look at it this week. Does my life truly reflect the culture of Christ? Or am I just trying to, you know, eat at a, a, a Christian restaurant once a week and say, that's good? This is why Christians have often used the language of virtues and vices. And to, to say that to be a Christian, it's more than just the self-control to get rid of a lot of bad habits, but it is actually the transformation of your heart and what your heart desires. Rebecca DeYoung has this great book I read earlier this year called Glittering Vices, and I'll quote from it several times here in a moment. And she gives us a helpful illustration of what true Christian character looks like. This is who God is transforming us. She says, consider two married persons. Jane regularly struggles with sexual feelings for men other than her husband, though she resists them. The second person, Joe, has enjoyed ardent affection for his wife throughout the ups and downs of 30 years of marriage. Are they both faithful? In a technical sense, at least, yes. Jane successfully exercises self-control over her wayward desires, but only Joe embodies fidelity as a virtue. His faithfulness has taken deep root in who he is. And then she asks this great question. Who wouldn't rather have a spouse with Joe's fidelity than Jane's self-control. That's what virtue is. That's what it means to live the Christian life, to have your core, your heart, your desires reflect the beauty of Christ. It's deeper than self-discipline. Self-discipline has an important role, but it's not just about getting all of your external behaviors in check even though your heart is a wreck. Your culture shapes some of your deepest habits, your reactions, your choices. And so what we need to want is a change of our culture, even in the church, so that as new Christians come in and people spend more time here, they start, that culture naturally rubs off on them, and we all start to look more and more like Jesus.
So this takes us then to our second point, these vices that we're supposed to take off. We're going to look through this list, and for simplicity, I'm going to uh, combine several of them together. So first, we'll jump in at the deep end, sexual immorality, impurity, and lust. Today, most people believe that to deny someone sexual pleasure in whatever form it takes is to deny something of their humanity. It's almost akin to maybe people say some sort of abuse. You're not allowing them to be fully human. Yet there's an irony here because also in our culture today that while sexual expression is held of, it's kind of this main component of what it means to be human, there's a simultaneous movement to lower and lower the age from which people can experiment with their sexuality. And it's kind of these two irreconcilable things, right? Is it just about pleasure in which, well, why wouldn't we want everyone to have it? Or is it tied to something deeper about our identity? In which case it should be handled carefully because if you mess that up, you could really mess up a person. And our culture right now seems to want to say yes to both, which can only do a whole lot of destruction. What is sexual immorality? What is lust? Rebecca DeYoung says, lust strips sexual pleasure seeking down to individual gratification apart from a love relation to a person. Lust says sexual pleasure is my pleasure. It's not tying it to the humanity and the love and the care for the other person. It's just saying it's about what feels good for me. This is one of the key issues that we're going to see with lust. It unplugs sexuality from the core ways in which it ties into our humanity and really just imbibes that phrase, if it feels good, do it. And yet sexuality is so much more than that. It ties back to the very beginning of creation. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. So in the very first chapter of the Bible, we see the importance of sexuality. It is tied to what it means to be made in God's image. It's the key to fulfilling God's first command for Adam and Eve, be fruitful and increase in number. So on the one hand, we can agree with part of our culture that says actually sexuality is really important for humans. It maybe is even tied in part of what it means to be human. It has incredible power. From the beginning of Genesis, we see it is one of the ways in which we actually resemble God in our, in our sexual unions. And so, if done incorrectly, it could also do a lot of damage. Our sexuality is one of the ways in which we reflect God's work of creation. Let's think about it. Just as the Father and the Son and the Spirit all came together to create the world, a father and a mother come together to create a new life. The unity that God has, God is three persons, but one God, he is unified, is mirrored in a man and a woman coming together to become one. This union is an illustration of God's union with himself. When Paul reminds us in Ephesians 5 that God's purpose of marriage was ultimately to point us to the relationship between Christ and his church, it means that that union reflected in the sexuality between a husband and a wife represents, as the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it, a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. 
That is what it is supposed to be. So what then is sexual immorality and lust? It is trying to take all of those ways in which our sexuality actually resembles God and unplug it from that and say it's just about what feels good in the moment. DeYoung writes, lustful pleasure seeking alienates people from each other just when they are supposed to be drawn together. Lust imitates acts of real intimacy, but in truth, it is their antithesis. Right? It, it is not, it, it's, it's kind of like you know, a, a port or a connection with all these different pins in it, right? And it's, it's just trying to plug in one of those pins to touch without all the other pins that have all the other data about what sexuality is supposed to be. And when you do that, it, it not only falls flat, but it can do a lot of damage. Because what you do physically is tied to your soul. It means that as much as you or our culture tries to say, well, lustful pleasure is just about pleasure, it will always have an effect on your soul, either for good or for bad. So will it have a, an effect for good or for bad? Right? That, that sexuality is actually one of the ways in which we are called to worship and glorify God. And does it reflect that? Or in your attempt to have lustful pleasure on your own terms, you cannot take it from how God intended it, and so you're, autom you're gonna cross some wires, which will, and so what is supposed to bring life and joy will actually be deadening the nerves of your soul's connection to God. And this is why you know, Christian sexual ethics, why scripture gives us guidelines rules for how we should enjoy sexuality, not because it wants to minimize it or say it's, you know, it's just the thing we're going to talk about, but say, actually, this is one of the ways in which you get to experience the unity and the love and the power of God. And don't take that lightly. And when you try to do it on your own terms, it will, it will do some sort of damage. And so it's only when... when when sexual expression is linked in love for the other person, when you see that other person not just as a, an object for your own pleasure or satisfaction, but actually someone who is beautifully made in the image of God, and you see an aspect of God in him or her, do you unlock what sex is designed to be, this form of worship? And this is why sexual immorality or impurity, lust, whether in pornography, continually just indulging in fantasies in your mind, homosexual acts, sex outside of marriage, any of those things are not just momentary acts of pleasure or harmless habits that you think, yeah, it's, it, no one else knows about it, no one cares, what does this matter what I do when no one else sees? But remember, those things are actually disconnecting parts of your soul from the life of God and how they were meant to be used. Well, let's look at greed. Next phrase, greed is idolatry. The love of money is worshiping another god. Now, lust is a big topic. We can spend a lot of time, and we did, talking about it, but you might be surprised to learn that actually greed is talked more about in Scripture than lust is. This should serve as something as a warning for us to realize how easy the appeal and the lure of money can work its way into your heart without you even realizing it. 
Because on one hand, you know, most of us have sense, well, I know this, you know, sexual immorality isn't good, but, but money, you know, that's like the Trojan horse that so easily works into our hearts. And for most of us, American culture has influenced your relationship to money more than the culture of Christ has. Right? What has changed how you view money? How your coworkers view money? How you grew up and your parents used money? Or how Christ talks about money? You know, we never have enough, we think. We always compare ourselves to those who have more. We think that our money is ours instead of something that is on loan from God for which he will give us an account. And, and why is greed idolatry? Frederick Buchner tells us, the trouble with being rich is that, and I think for the sake of this, every one of us is rich in some sense. The trouble with being rich is that you can solve with your checkbook virtually all practical problems that bedevil ordinary people. So you fixed all those issues, and now you're left to contend with the great human problems, how to be happy, how to love and be loved, how to find meaning and purpose in your life. And in desperation, the rich are continually tempted to believe that they can solve these problems too with their checkbooks. And for the majority of us here, we would be considered rich in the sense that you put more trust in, into solving your problems, you trust money more to solve those problems or finding security than you do put trust in God. And what does that mean? Money is your object of worship. What do you trust in? That's your God, right? So what do you do to fight this? You know, one of the, probably the best ways, so simple and yet so hard, give yourself limits, right? Say, you know, I'm not going to acquire more than this. Whether it's a certain amount in savings or a bank account or even, uh, you know, possessions. I'm going to give myself limits for how much I keep for myself all the time. How much I think I need to save. You know, when you live in this country, you'll never think you have enough because we have the richest people in the world in this country. You'll, and you'll have a good number of reasons to say, well, yeah, I'm never going to be like that, but I just need a little bit more. Give yourself limits. Push yourself to be generous beyond what is comfortable for you. Because what does that do? It forces you to stop trusting in the money as much and gets you to trust more in God's provision for you. Maybe this means you lower your standard of living from what it could be. Maybe it means you don't save as much as you want to or you think you need to. And in those things, you show what you trust is your true provider, which is God. Next, anger, rage, and malice. Anger isn't necessarily wrong. Ephesians 4.26 tells us, in your anger, do not sin. And yet, then it goes on to say, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. This is what is so dangerous about anger. Even justified anger, when it is held onto, it is like a corrosive rust that creates openings in your heart for Satan to wield influence and control. This means, I think, that it is very possible to be angry only about things that God is angry about, and yet you're holding on to your anger in a way that it is actually hardening your heart towards God, and yet you're oblivious to it because you think, well, these are all things that are wrong anyways. Underneath anger is usually an unstated belief that this is not what I deserve, this shouldn't be happening to me, 
I'm, I, I don't need to deal with this. Again, DeYoung writes, much of my own anger makes me realize that when push comes to shove, I really don't trust God to manage the universe. I would prefer to direct the traffic, shaking my fist, forcing my agenda, than to weep and to wait for him, God, as he slowly walks up the middle of the road, bearing a cross. And what a powerful contrast. Right? What do we do? How do you deal with your anger? Anger is so much of a bigger problem than we realize. It is like this cancer that spreads. I think one of the most, the best ways is to let God deal with it, to pray your anger. We see examples of that in the Psalms. Even when you are justifiably angry, the problem is that you aren't equipped to hold on to it for very long. And it will so easily spoil, sin spoils even righteous anger, leading it to corrupt these parts of your soul. It's why we must pray our anger to God. You must cry out to Him for justice. You must hand over your anger to Him and trust that He will make all things right. And to realize that so much of your anger is actually rooted in that fact that, why isn't God fixing this now? Instead of looking to him slowly walking up the middle of the road, bearing a cross with his solution to all the things that he's angry about. Lastly, slander and lying. It's interesting because Paul lists lying in verse 9 as one of the foundational things that should change for Christians. One of the defining marks of our culture should be, we don't lie. Maybe this ties back to the original sin with Adam and Eve. What led to that first sin? It was a lie from Satan. And what is a lie? A lie is really trying to build some alternate reality, right? So here is what is true. A lie is saying, whoa, there's some other truth. To build a reality apart from God's reality, whether it's a white lie or a big lie, at the root, they're the same. It's creating a reality that does not match up with God's reality. And one of the reasons this is so destructive for us is that every time you lie, you're creating this tension between reality and the false reality that you're saying. Right? You're trying to uphold the lie or maintain the lie, and it tears your heart apart. It can only do damage to your soul. And there's all kinds of ways we lie. We lie to ourselves about our needs, about our hurts, our addiction, our lust, perhaps. We lie to others because we're worried what they will think about us if we tell the truth. We don't own our mistakes, instead we make excuses about them. We, we lie about others for various reasons. So how do we fight our tendency to lie? You need to love the truth. You need to believe that God is the truth and you can never go wrong with him. Even when it hurts, even if it makes, it, makes you look bad, and you've got to realize that one day God will fully reveal his reality. And what you don't want to do is have constructed a false reality that when he reveals everything, your whole life comes crashing down because you've been living on lies the entire time. Rest yourself on his truth. And that is a firm foundation that will last forever. So a lot of stuff here. And I realized even as I was going through this, I could split this sermon into two. But if I keep splitting every sermon into two, we'll never make it out of Colossians. <laughs> so to wrap up, what culture defines your life? What path are you walking on right now? 
What clothes are you wearing? And the thing is, you're going to fail in this. You're going to get discouraged because sometimes it, it feels like you'll never change. And so remember that Christ has done all the work. He will bring you home. He is faithful even if you're faithless. He promises to finish the work that he has started in you. And what I would encourage you to do when you see lists like this in Scripture is not just to look at this list of all the ways, well, here's all the ways that I've screwed up, but look at them with Christ on top of it and realize that this is Christ's list of all the things that he is going to fix in me. And then as you go to the next verses that Sean preached about last week, and this is Christ's list of all the things that he's going to build in me. And so you come to these lists, and what you discover is this is a beautiful picture of who I'm going to be through Christ alone and his faithfulness working in me over a lifetime. So what do you do in the meantime? I recently, my own Bible reading, reading read James 4-7 uh, in the message, which I think just put it really well. So let God work his will in you. Yell aloud no to the devil and watch him make himself scarce. Say a quiet yes to God and he'll be there in no time. Quit dabbling in sin. Purify your inner life. Quit playing the field. Hit bottom and cry your eyes out. The fun and the games are over. Get serious, get really serious. Get down on your knees before the master. It's the only way you'll get on your feet.